Hello and welcome to Frank Skinner's Poetry Podcast. I would like to talk about a poem which is one of the few poems I know off by heart. It's a poem I've used at sound checks in theatres and on TV shows for the last probably 10 years. I chose it for a, a book where they asked celebrities to choose poems. It was a book called Poems for Refugees in 2002 that was published. Just a couple of years ago, I read this poem on Radio 4 or recited it and um, there were tears in my eyes. Familiarity did not dull its power. I can still cry at a sound check. It's a poem by the famous English poet William Wordsworth and it was written in 1798. And it's called, or at least its first line, is She Dwelt Among the Untrodden Ways. And I'd like to talk about it to you, obviously. Why bring it up otherwise? So that's where it begins. She, she dwelt among the untrodden ways, beside the springs of Dove, a maiden there was none to praise and very few to love. So the untrodden ways, we're going to go with Wordsworth where poetry doesn't normally go. We're going to deliberately step off the diving board into the deep end of anonymity. Beside the springs of Dove. So he's given this woman a geographical location. He's making her actual, making her real. There's... There's often a sort of journalistic element to Wordsworth's poetry. He walked about a lot all over the place and he met various examples of the poor, of people from rural areas and he, he wrote a series of encounter poems. So he might meet an old man desperately trying to get a tree stomp out of the ground, or he might meet a female vagrant or a little girl who insists that her dead brother and sister are still very much part of the family. So he would talk to these people and then share it with us. That is not what this poem is about. In fact, I think it's an interesting contrast, but we'll come to that later. So she dwelt among the untrodden ways beside the springs of Dove, a maiden there was none to praise and very few to love. So there's none to praise this woman, but a few love her. So I think we're getting a sense of the kind of people we're operating here, not the sort of people who wax lyrical, who flatter each other. But Wordsworth is a man on a mission. He's going to change things here. He's going to tread the untrodden ways and he's going to praise the unpraised that is what he plans to do. He is like someone presenting a documentary about a, a, a group of people who have been, he feels, neglected, overlooked in some way. Now, this poem features in a, in a collection called The Lyrical Ballads, which came out in 1798. And it also involves Samuel Taylor Coleridge, who you you may have heard of, the man who wrote The uh, Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner. But it's, it's chiefly Wordsworth. And, 
And there's a preface to the uh, to the lyrical ballads in which Wordsworth offers a kind of a manifesto of what he sees as a as a new poetry, a revolutionary poetry that he's uh, introducing to the world. And he makes it clear that it will concentrate on people from, as he puts it, humble and rustic life because they are, and I quote, less under the influence of social vanity. They convey their feeling and notions in simple and unelaborated expressions. So people who keep it real, and he wants the poetry to be the same thing, poetry where he will employ what he calls language really used by men. You'll have to excuse him, I think, the non-inclusive language. Um, I can't I can't rewrite Wordsworth for this, but he, he meant men and women, of course. So he's trying to strip it down. Poetry has been ever more elaborate as the 18th century has developed. And um, he is, if you like, the punk rock response to prog rock, that, that sort of classically influenced, elaborate poetry that came before him. And he says when people read this book, they will look around for poetry. So they're thinking, what is this? I guess like when we first heard The Pistols and The Clash and you were either exhilarated by the rawness or you were looking for augmented chords that could not be found. So they're sort of political poems in that respect. We're treading on untrodden ways, unfashionable places. We're meeting previously unsung inhabitants. Even the people who do know this woman don't praise her. So uh, what she needs, as Wordsworth sees it, is a poet, a poet who can come in and show that she is relevant and important. He rates the role of poet quite highly. He says that a poet, and I quote, is endowed with more lively sensibility, more enthusiasm and tenderness, who has a greater knowledge of human nature and a more comprehensive soul than are supposed to be common among mankind. So he is a special, specially tuned, specially... He has sensibility as well as intelligence. A man with his nervous system on the outside and he's going to experience all these things and put them in their proper place, show that they are important and you can live in untrodden ways but it doesn't mean that you don't count. So we go on to the second stanza. A violet by a mossy stone half hidden from the eye fair as a star when only one is shining in the sky. And these are his descriptions of this woman, a violet by a mossy stone. So a, another image of beauty ignored by many or not noticed, half hidden from the eye. And he's a kind of a obscurity regulator. Thanks to him, she won't be half hidden anymore. But a violet by a mossy stone, doesn't that sound to you like the image of flowers next to a gravestone? So already there's a, there's a shadow across this poem. 
This is a, a sort of a love song with dark bits, and we're heading that way. This line, fair as a star when only one is shining in the sky, I mean, there's a bit of vinegar in that, isn't there? She's fair, but probably because there's not much competition among the untrodden ways. It's quite reductive of this woman's fairness. And I think this sums up the challenge here. He, he gives her these, violet by a mossy stone, a half hidden from the eye, fair as a stone. And it's, he wants to make her special by writing about her, by shining his poetic torch upon her. But he also wants to keep that specialness on a rein to keep it real. He wants to avoid the, the classical style. He wants to avoid lovesick shepherds playing on their flutes, sighing for a beautiful maiden in some impossible, idealised landscape. If you take Alexander Pope's poem Spring from earlier in the uh, in the 18th century, Pope being a, a poet, a poet I love, but uh, a poet who I think Wordsworth would see himself rebelling against. This is Pope's Spring. All nature laughs, the groves are fresh and fair, the sun's mild lustre warms the vital air. If Sylvia smiles, new glories gild the shore, and vanquished nature seems to charm no more. So it's a beautiful day amidst the groves, and nature's having a great time, but one smile from Sylvia, this woman, and nature is dull in comparison. This is not a sentiment you would ever get in a Wordsworth poem. This is why he is amidst the untrodden ways with the sounds of gurgling springs in his ears. Nature, I don't think this would be an overstatement. At this stage, certainly of his career, nature is Wordsworth's religion. He walked about in it all day. He would go on like 40-mile walks, absolutely soaking up nature, breathing it in, writing about it, thinking about it, talking about it. He writes what we get from being in nature, that feeling, whatever that feeling is to a man of his extreme sensibility. He writes it above intellect, above education, above books, above any conventional wisdom. In another one of these um, lyrical ballads from 1798, there's a poem called The Tables Turned, and it says, One impulse from a vernal wood may teach you more of man, of moral evil and of good, than all the sages can. One impulse from a vernal wood. So a vernal wood being a wood in spring seems to kick out some sort of energy, uh, some cosmic connection that bypasses intellect and, and goes somewhere deeper. A bit like um, this a 17th century writer called Andrew Marvel or Marvell. And um, he used the phrase, a green thought in a green shade. And I think it's that kind of thing. Wordsworth was famous for hanging out with his sister, Dorothy. They would go on these long walks together. And he apparently would compose poetry as he went and step out the metre, sort of step it out so he could hear the rhythm of his poetry as they walked. So, so poetry almost literally 
written on the landscape. He is the great nature poet. Okay, the third and final stanza. She lived unknown, and few could know when Lucy ceased to be. But she's in her grave, and oh, the difference to me. So she lived unknown, and few could know when Lucy ceased to be. It sounds like a contradiction. If she lived unknown, how could anyone know? when she ceased to be. But here I think Wordsworth is using the word unknown not so much as an adjective, as a label that society puts. We still do it, don't we? We still put that. We, we talk about, oh, it was in the middle of nowhere or they're a bit of a nobody. And um, that is not true, of course. Everybody is a somebody to somebody else. Certainly the speaker knew her and and a, and a few other people who who knew when she ceased to be. So, uh, yeah, he's making a point, I think, about what society calls unknown. And that's why I think he names her Lucy, I think. is is She's got a name. She's not a nobody. Now, that those last two lines, but she's in her grave and, oh, the difference to me. I have long thought that all the hollow words that follow uh, a death, you know, our thoughts with his family, or all that kind of stuff, because people don't really know how to express what they feel. It's all swept away by this final yelp of anguish from Wordsworth in this poem. The line ending, I think, is important here, but, but she is in her grave and, oh... And there's the line break, the difference to me. And that O oh, can linger as long as you as you want. And so I've, the poem means a great deal to me and I think it's an incredible raw expression of grief. Anyway, hold on to that. I was in a Catholic church a couple of years ago and... The priest was talking about medieval art and pointed out that medieval artists didn't sign their work normally because it was religious art and they didn't feel that their place in it was of any importance. And then he said the romantic poets came along and they, their individuality was, was essential to them. Uh, and they talked very much about their feelings and their experiences and they examined themselves in public. And the priest felt that this has now developed into a modern art world where artists like Tracy Emin or Gilbert and George are, are their art in a way. They're absolutely autobiographically tied up with their art. And it made me think, this sideswipe at the Romantics, is, oh, the difference to me, is that indicative of that self obsession is this a poem about how the death affects the speaker rather than about the person who's who's died i mean i'm not saying that's a bad thing i think we often dwell when when someone close to us dies we we dwell on how it will affect us but it just it's one of the things i love about poetry is the same poem can change for me over a period of time. I can read a poem I feel very familiar and 
totally across. And just one day, for no apparent reason, I will read it in a different way and think, oh, God, yeah, and it will change. And that's what's fantastic. They are the, the gifts that keep on giving. So I, I, I step back and consider this idea that this might be a celebration of uh, not ego, but self, how one responds to the death of another. The poetic torch being pointed very much at the uh, heart and mind of the speaker. There are a group of these Lucy poems, incidentally. There's a, there's a debate about how many there are or what order they're read in, but there's, a, there's certainly three or four that are absolutely associated and regarded as the Lucy poems. Wordsworth said he never intended them as a group, uh, although he does use the name Lucy in four of them. And Thomas de Quincey, the, um, the famous opium enthusiast of the 18th century, said whenever he asked Wordsworth about the Lucy poems, about who Lucy was or whatever, Wordsworth kept, I quote, a mysterious silence. So let's just have a quick look through these and see if we can throw any light on, on, on what's going on in She Dwelt Among the Untrodden Ways. The generally accepted first Lucy poem is called Strange Fits of Passion Have I Known. And it's a, a guy riding towards Lucy's house. So the speaker is on horseback and um, he's heading to a cot, as he puts it, which is uh, short for cottage, I believe. Strange fits of passion have I known and I will dare to tell. But in the lover's ear alone... What once to me befell. So this is for lovers only. Other people won't get it. And then he talks about this um, ride to Lucy's cottage where the moon is in the sky and uh, he gets closer and closer. And now we reach the orchard plot and as we climb the hill, the sinking moon to Lucy's cot came near and nearer still. So it's, it's good tension management we being him and his horse, by the way. Uh, my horse moved on, hoof after hoof he raised and never stopped, when down behind the cottage roof at once the bright moon dropped. And then this last stanza. What fond and wayward thoughts will slide into a lover's head? Oh, mercy, to myself I cried, if Lucy should be dead. Now, this seems to suggest a sort of a death fantasy in, in a way. I, I don't know. I'm trying to think since I read this whether I've fantasised about the death of my various partners. I remember uh, seeing an interview with Nora Ephron, the American writer, saying she often fantasised about the death of her husband because it freed up her fantasies a bit. I don't know if that's what's uh, if that's what's going on here. I think when he says it's for the lover's ear alone, and at the, at the end again he, he mentions that um, that idea, what fond and wayward thoughts will slide into a lover's head. I wonder if he's slightly giving himself a bit of leeway there because 
you know, Shakespeare said the madman, the lover and the poet are of an imagination all compact. We associate a certain strangeness to those who are passionately in love, certainly newly in love. And it kind of takes the edge off the off the death fantasy element a bit. I understand that Wordsworth added the uh, lover's specific qualifiers in a later version of the poem. So perhaps he did think that the uh, idea of her death suddenly appearing in the speaker's mind was a bit macabre and needed some context. Speaking of changes to this poem, there was a further stanza. So the poem did end at one point like this. I told her this, her laugh the light is ringing in my ears, and when I think upon that night, my eyes are dim with tears. So when he told her that he'd had this thought, she laughed, but of course now she is dead, so that seems terribly grim and ironic. That is the closest we get to Lucy, by the way, in all of these poems. And that is the interesting thing. She dwelt among the untrodden ways, and so he goes there, it seems, and made him there was none to pray. So he's there to, to, to make this person known, who we view as unknown. But we never meet Lucy. In, in this poem, he's heading towards her cottage, but he, he never gets there. All we get is this, oh, what if she died? And then the next one in the sequence is generally seen as uh, she dwelt among the untrodden ways when, of course, she is dead. And then a third poem of the Lucy poems is called A Slumber Did My Spirit Seal. And this is, again, she's dead by this stage. So we don't see her, but nor do we get in this poem or any of the Lucy poems any kind of flashback or reminiscence that shows us Lucy the person. Here we go. A slumber did my spirit seal. I had no human fears. She seemed a thing that could not feel the touch of earthly years. Now, at first that sounds like, well, I guess we all do that. We all think, oh, I love this person. Nothing can possibly go wrong. And then there's a terrible tragedy. But the line break again seems significant. She seemed a thing that could not feel. Line break. The touch of earthly years. She seemed a thing that could not feel. So then she's even more distant, even less human feeling. And, and the, the second and last stanza, no motion has she now, no force. She neither hears nor sees. It's like he's ticking off a checklist on a death certificate. No motion has she now, no force. She neither hears nor sees. And then this last couple of lines rolled round in earth's diurnal course with rocks and stones and trees. It could almost be a parody, couldn't it? I mean, to say that about your dead lover, rolled round in earth's diurnal course with rocks and stones and trees. I think what's happening here is... It's Wordsworth bringing in his, his nature religion. Usually in the poems, the political points are made when talking about the people and the philosophical points are made 
when talking about nature. And I guess the two meet here. Coleridge, who was a, a great friend of Wordsworth, said that the poems were about Wordsworth imagining his sister Dorothy's death and sort of riffing on how that would feel. That might explain why he was quite secretive about um, where the poems came from. But we don't. Anyway, we don't. We don't find Lucy. The, the the closest we get that giggling girl that that gets cut, and so she's she's gone. She's joined nature. She's become engreened in some way. The only other one of these poems I'd like to look at and briefly is called Three Years She Grew in Sun and Shower. And again, it names Lucy. A lot of critics think it's about Wordsworth's three-year-old daughter dying. And in it, nature chooses this girl, age three, to be his bride and then talks about how that will be. And uh, just thinking about um, rolling around with stones and trees and all that stuff, he says, and hers, this is after she becomes Mrs. Nature, and hers shall be the breathing balm and hers the silence and the calm of mute, insensate things. So when she marries nature, She'll be all of nature. She'll be the lively stuff as well. But she'll also be mute, insensate things, stones and trees and stuff of, of that ilk. And I suppose I can't imagine that he would apply this cold experimental philosophy to the actual death of his actual three-year-old daughter. I prefer to think it's Wordsworth considering how a fictional distraught lover might make sense of why Lucy was taken from him and how he can still retain contact with her. She's now, I suppose, an impulse from a vernal wood, so she can still be contacted in in some mystical way. Oh, but you said she was chosen by nature age three, I hear you calling. Yeah, okay, but perhaps she was chosen, but then allowed to live on and live on long enough for the speaker to have fallen in love with her before nature came to collect his winnings, as it were. So it, it still works. So if you look at those poems together, I think you realise, or it feels to me as if it's Wordsworth experimenting with bereavement, of working out how bereavement feels and how it can be expressed and what death means and how nature is related to death and so on. It's not about a woman. She never appears, as, as I say. Her chief role, Lucy, in these poems is a, a sort of profound absence, I would say. I suppose on a sentimental level, I, I, I prefer to think of Lucy as she's in a poem that's meant so much to me for so long. I prefer to think of her as a violet by a mossy stone, uh, less keen on her as a violet and or a mossy stone, which is what she seems to be in some of the other Lucy poems. But it, it, it might sound to you like in looking at this 
much-loved poem of mine as part of a sort of cycle, as part of a group, has, has diminished it for me. But I think it's just an example of how poems change when you read around them and, 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 and think around them. She dwelt among the untrodden way still means a tremendous amount to me. I think it all, always will. I think it is a great poem. And even when I read that bit, I know the difference to me um, a bit earlier in this podcast. Um, I don't know if you heard it in my voice, but I could feel it. I could feel that emotion that I always get when I uh, when I say that line. But it's a great poem. I don't know if the, the, the other Lucy poems, I don't love them as much, but they're interesting. I don't need Lucy to have been a real person or to know that Wordsworth actually experienced the death of a lover. I, I, I'm always saying to you, you know, that, that, that the voice in the poem need not be the poet and often isn't. And the experience is there can be an amalgam they can be in, invented who knows doesn't matter to me as long as the poem is good a poem can be true without without being factual i think the expression of, of of grief in this poem feels authentic i mean really it's simplicity it's sort of starkness compared to the sort of flowery epitaphs that you get in other 18th century poetry is um is i mean that oh that O in this context honestly feels like a primal gasp of terrible loss. And you know what? That's enough for me. I, I don't need a coroner's report to give it some sort of validity. I still read Wordsworth on a regular basis, I, sh- I should say. I it, He's not the most fashionable romantic poet because he made the terrible error unlike Byron Shelley and Keats, of not dying young. And that, the older you get, obviously, the the more rubbish you put out. But when I read this 1798 collection, Lyrical Ballads, by him and Coleridge, I'm not kidding you, it blew me away. I think it's the first time I remember a collection of poetry absolutely bending my mind. And... To describe it as life-changing, I don't think would be excessive. Particularly, I, I was at Birmingham Polytechnic when I did my English degree, my first English degree, if you want me to um, to lay it on the line. Polytechnics may be slightly looked down on. Some of my, my younger listeners might not even know what they were, but they were sort of viewed as the poor man's university. At Birmingham Polytechnic, when I was there in the... Uh, late 70s, early 80s, there was a lecturer called John Squires, who was a very salt-of-the-earth Derbyshire bloke, and he loved Wordsworth. He would stand in front of us, and I'd never seen this before. This was a, a, you know, a, a real man's man, as they used to call them. He would stand there with his arms spread and recite these poems and feel them. You could the electricity in the room of someone who, it wasn't admiration, it was love. These poems meant the world to him, and it was infectious. And I think that's why I still read Wordsworth now, was because John Squires, uh, that polytechnic lecturer, lit it up for me. And I think lit up my passion for poetry in general. 
people always talk about teachers who change their lives. Uh, John Squire's lecturing on Wordsworth was, it was a complete game changer for me. And it was probably looking back about six lectures on Wordsworth. And I can still remember chunks of them. I can still see him delivering those poems. So yeah, six lectures probably in 1979, but um, as the saying goes, oh, the difference to me. So thank you so much for listening to this episode of My Poetry Podcast. Don't forget to press subscribe on your favourite podcast app so you never miss an episode. (laughs) Imagine it. And if you enjoyed it, never know, please do rate, review and subscribe. Oh, and why not buy my new book, How to Enjoy Poetry by Frank Skinner. P.S. There aren't enough P.S.'s in podcasts. If you like this, you can listen to The Frank Skinner Show every Saturday morning at 8am on Absolute Radio. That is also available, of course, as a podcast. It's uh, it's got less poetry in it than this, but uh, more laughs. See you next week. (laughs) 